Let us pray. Most gracious Father, again we come near to You. For You have drawn near to us first. And we pray that You would enlighten our hearts, enlighten our bodies, enlighten our minds, that we may ever be guided more and more into that glory that was revealed on that holy mountain. That we would reflect that very glory and always be changed more and more to reflect it. That You might be known through us and that You might be known throughout the whole world by Your people. All of this we do ask through that very same Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. It's Transfiguration Sunday. This is not the Feast of the Transfiguration. That's another day in the church calendar. That happens on August 6th. But, through the various changes through the years, as they reflected on updating the liturgy and kind of updating the lectionary and making adjustments and tweaks to it, one of the things that they changed was how they structured Epiphany. The season of Epiphany used to have three weeks of what they would call pre-Lent, a time of preparing for the season of Lent. In the changes that they made, they decided to extend Epiphany, so to speak, by dropping that pre-Lenten season but adding to the season of Epiphany the last Sunday to be focused on the transfiguration of Christ, to look to that glory that was revealed through Him as the great manifestation, the great revealing of Jesus to His disciples. For that again is what Epiphany is about, that revelation of Jesus, that manifestation of the Son, that revealing of the glory and the light that only comes from the Father, that is imminent, And part of the very essence of God Himself. And so it is absolutely most appropriate that Epiphany leads up to that moment of seeing Jesus in His divine glory. Of being reminded of that divine glory as we enter into the season of Lent. As we move toward Lent, we are reminded of the one to whom we serve. We are reminded of the one to whom we have committed ourselves. We are reminded of the one who has committed Himself to us, who has united Himself to human flesh, and by faith has united Himself to each and every one of us. That He is a man and yet fully God, and yet being fully God, He is still fully man. And on this mountain we see that great and glorious revelation. In some lectionaries, it directs our attention in the Old Testament, not to what we heard in our lectionary today, but to two options. Sometimes you hear about Moses coming down from the mountain and the glory pouring forth from his face. Having spent so much time in the presence of God, he is absorbed in a sense that glory and comes down radiating the glory of God before the people. When you see old pictures of Moses coming down from the mountain holding the Ten Commandments, his face is shining and sometimes it looks like there are horns coming out of his forehead because of the glory coming from him. Another scripture reading that is appropriate for remembering the transfiguration is Elijah being caught up into heaven, going out and taking his apprentice, his apprentice Elisha with him, the prophet who will take his place, going with Him to a holy mountain and being caught up in the chariot of fire and carried into heaven. 
leaving behind only his cloak that Elisha takes up. And so we have these two special men who show up with Jesus and we can hear about them in different ways throughout the Old Testament, but instead, our lectionary picks, picks, I think, a rather strange passage. There in 1 Kings chapter chapter 19, we hear about Elijah complaining to God. We hear of Elijah fleeing from Jezebel. He has just come from the mountain, Mount Carmel, where he is seeing God defeat the prophets of Baal. The prophets of Baal are thrown down. And Elijah has gone out and slaughtered these prophets, for they are false prophets who have led the people of God astray, who have turned the people of God into idolaters. But Elijah hears of Jezebel's wrath, and so Elijah flees. And he eventually ends up at Horeb. He eventually ends up at the very mount where God came down and poured out His covenant before the people. He has been guided by God, spiritually and supernaturally, having been tired and hungry. The Lord fed him and took care of him and gave him strength for a 40-day journey. And here Elijah comes to rest in a cave. And the Lord appears and says, What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah responds there in verse 10 of chapter 19. He says, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Here we hear of Elijah being despondent, being broken, being scared. And in that fear, there's a sense in which he is overreacting. He knows that there are other prophets in the land. We hear about those prophets constantly after Elisha is called. We hear of them traveling from place to place when Elijah is about to be taken up and they keep encountering prophet after prophet after prophet. Schools of prophets coming out and telling Elisha, don't you know your master is going to be taken up into heaven? He's like, yes, yes, hush. Don't tell me about that right now. That these are true prophets who know God's will for Elijah. But here Elijah is crying out that there's no other prophets but me in his forsakenness and his fear. But the reason I think that we end up hearing about this passage today is because of how God approaches Elijah. For what does he say? He tells Elijah to go to the mouth of the cave and the Lord will meet him. And what do we see happen? We hear that the Lord passes by. And that there's a great and strong wind that tears the mountains and breaks in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And then there's a great earthquake. But the Lord is not in the earthquake. And a great fire consumes the land. But the Lord was not in the fire. And then there's the sound of the low whisper. The thin silence. The quiet word. And when Elijah hears that, he wraps his face and he steps out onto the mountain face and speaks to the Lord again. And he tells him the same thing. He says, I'm very jealous for your ways, O God. But the people have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars and killed the prophets. And only I am left. The Lord tells him to go forth, to go anoint a king over, it, over Syria. To go anoint a new king over Israel. And to take up a new prophet, Elisha. 
to take Elijah's place. The Lord lays forward the path of what's going to happen. And He's going to bring judgment against the people who have spoken out against Him. He's going to bring judgment onto those who have rejected His covenant. But yet, there in verse 18, the Lord says, I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed Him. In Elijah's despondency, he has neglected to remember that there are those who have not turned to Baal. There are those who have not worshipped the idol that Ahab and Jezebel have set up, that they want the people to worship. There are at least 7,000 who have not bowed down nor kissed this idol. That there is mercy in the midst of the judgment coming. That God has preserved His elect. He has preserved a remnant of His people amidst the apostasy. He has kept pure a group that have not turned to other gods. And He reminds Elijah of that. That there are those who will receive mercy even in the midst of judgment coming. And I think that's why we see God come in a different way in this passage. He doesn't come in the wind or the earthquake or the fire. If you remember, that is how He came down on Mount Sinai with Moses. He poured out His glory upon the mountain in a, in a spectacular way. Raining down fire and thunder and lightnings and earthquakes and loud noises and trumpets blaring. God does not appear to Elijah in this way. Instead, He appears as a thin, low whisper. He appears quietly. And He points Elijah toward mercy. That though there is judgment, yes, those who escape Haziel will be put to death by Jehu, and the one who escapes Jehu will be put to death by Elisha. Those who have apostatized from the kingdom of Israel, from the ways of the covenant, will be put to death. But mercy will prevail, for there will be 7,000 that have not bowed to Baal, that have not even kissed Him. And think about that number for a moment, 7,000. You have two very important numbers there. Seven, one of the numbers of perfection, and a thousand, a number of completion, that the whole complete people of God will be found in this remnant, the 7,000 in Israel, is a symbolic number of all the people of God in Israel. I think it is at least 7,000, but it's probably an even larger number. This is a large round number for Elijah to cling to. The perfect completion of the God of people will be held pure by Yahweh Himself. And Yahweh reminds him through that thin, low whisper that He will save His people. He will redeem them. He will purify them. He will pour mercy on them in the midst of judgment coming to those who reject, to those who refuse, to those who push back continually and despise the God of the covenant who offers mercy to them. Nevertheless, mercy will prevail for those who trust in the covenant. All of that is background to what we hear about in the transfiguration today. That the low whisper of God becomes known to us in the very sufferings of Jesus Christ. Who is revealed to us to be the God, to be God through the transfiguration. That low whisper we heard of before Elijah directs us to the sufferings of Christ that bring us mercy. And in the midst of that transfiguration, we are directed to hear Jesus 
to hear Jesus through the very scriptures God has given to us so that we would share in His glory. You see, that's what we're being directed to this day. That that low whisper is seen in Jesus who brings mercy. And thus, the voice from heaven tells us to hear Jesus through the scriptures so that we will share in His glory. And so the first thing that we see here in this story about the transfiguration is that Mark tells us that it was after six days that Jesus took with Him Peter and James and John. And of course, we don't have the broad context here, so I'll fill it in. After six days, what is it six days after? It's six days after St. Peter has confessed that Jesus is the Christ. And that Christ then tells him the Messiah must suffer and die at the hands of wicked men in Jerusalem. But He will be raised once more. He begins to foretell His death directly to His disciples. He will be rejected and He will be put to death, but He will rise again. And then even more so, there in verse 1 of chapter 9, Jesus even says that there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And then after six days, Jesus took Peter and James and John. It's six days after those glorious moments before the disciples of confession of Christhood, confession of Jesus being the true Son of God, of Jesus confessing His death and resurrection and His confession that there are, there, there are some standing there who will see the kingdom come, who will not taste death because of the coming of the kingdom. What does all of that mean? I think that it's directing us to realize that this is all a package deal. This coming of the kingdom, those who will not taste death until they see the coming of the kingdom, relates back to Jesus being the Messiah, and relate, which directly relates to Him going to Jerusalem to die and to be raised again. To die for us and to be resurrected. And thus the kingdom of God can be poured out upon all of us upon all those who have faith in Him because sin has been dealt with. That which keeps us as rebels apart from the kingdom of God is dealt with in Jesus. And that is what those who will not taste death get to look forward to, that pouring out of the Spirit through Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, which I think is given the foretaste of here in this moment of transfiguration. This transfiguration is a foretaste of that kingdom of the glory that is going to be poured out. That just as that glory is hidden in Christ until it is revealed there on the mountain, it is hidden in us. And we are being changed by that glory from one glory to another. It's hidden in us as Christ dwells within. To be revealed at the final consummation of all things when Christ returns and we will shine like with glory like His. Because we have been united to Christ who is both God and man and thus we have been united to God Himself and the life of God flows through us and will be flowing through our physical bodies in that last day. And just as Jesus is transfigured, we will become transfigured and glorified in that coming of the Lord. That is the foretaste that the disciples are getting to see on this mountain. But what happens there in that moment of transfiguration as they go up on that high mountain, Mark tells us that He was transfigured and His clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. Kind of funny how so many of our images from those ancient days, even in this image, we see Mary and Joseph wearing white. Honestly, people probably didn't wear white that much in the ancient world because they did lots of manual labor. And what gets really dirty really quick 
white clothes. And so if you're wandering around out in a desert place with white clothes on, you're going to get very brown very quickly. They're going to get dingy. They're going to get dirty. And so I think it's important when we see this reference to white clothing in the Bible, it's because people didn't wear white that often. Contrary to many of our images, white was not a common color to wear. And so when someone suddenly shows up wearing white, there is something eventful about to happen. We hear the angels wearing all white at the tomb. Every time an angel shows up, it always talks about a man wearing white clothing appearing, directing us toward His holiness, toward His greatness, toward His supernaturalness. And so when Mark says that His clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them, He's pointing out that suddenly there's a massive intense change even to the very clothes that Jesus is wearing. For in that moment, the very divinity that has been cloaked and hidden under the human flesh is beginning to be revealed in a way that the disciples can grasp and hold on to. That divine glory shines forth, that glory that has been set aside momentarily while He became man, not taken away from Him, not lost from Him, for He remains perfectly divine, but it's hidden. It's been put away temporarily while He is here on earth moving toward the crucifixion. And thus, in this moment on that holy mountain, His glory shines forth momentarily. So much so that even His clothes are caught up in that and are transformed as even His physical body is transformed and light shines forth from Him. The Shekinah glory that poured out upon the tabernacle and upon the temple in olden days is suddenly shining forth out of this human being. And there in that moment, Elijah and Moses show up and they are talking with Jesus. We don't hear the content of what they're talking about in St. Mark. But St. Luke tells us that they are talking about Jesus' coming exodus. His coming departure from this world. His coming crucifixion. And what a glory it is in that moment for them to meet Jesus here on the holy mountain. For here Moses steps foot into the promised land at last. To stand before his Lord and Savior Jesus. To stand before the Son of God enfleshed for him. And Elijah comes back down into this promised land as well to speak with this one that he had prophesied about, that he had looked forward to coming, the one who would bring redemption to Israel, the one who would make the ultimate sacrifice that would truly bring mercy to those 7,000 that he heard about in the Old Testament. For even he knew that all those sacrifices of the old were but temporary measures, that there had to be a greater sacrifice. And here he is on the holy mountain with the one who will make that sacrifice. And so they're there discussing it, gathered there. But Peter suddenly blurts out when he sees all of this, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let's make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And all the gospel writers are quick to say, for he didn't know what to say. He was confused. They were all terrified at this event happening. The first thing Peter jumps to is, let us figure out a way to keep this going, to stay on this mountain. This may be a reference to the Feast of Tents, the Feast of Booths. That feast there in the late fall when the people of Israel build temporary tabernacles to live in for a week to remind them of their travels through the desert, of their travels in the wilderness, of their travels when they did not have permanent shelter. It may be that Peter is thinking of that in that moment. It may be that he is 
seeing the Shekinah glory shining out of Jesus, and the first thing he thinks of is the tabernacle of the Old Testament upon which God's glory poured out. And he thinks, let us build a new tabernacle for you to dwell in, but also tabernacles for Moses and Elijah as the great and glorious prophets of old. All of that is mistaken in Peter's thoughts, for that is not what they need. What they need is Jesus, for He is the true tabernacle, for out of Him shines the glory of God. He is the only tabernacle that they need now. They don't need to build tabernacles for Jesus to dwell in, for He is that true tabernacle, the true presence of God in their midst. And to confirm that fact, the glory cloud overshadows them all, and a voice cries out, This is my beloved Son, listen to Him. In that moment, as Peter and James and John are seeing this glory shining forth out of Jesus, the glory cloud of Yahweh pours down upon that mountain and enshrouds it. And whenever a cloud shows up, you know that God is nearby. And the voice of God comes forth, This is my beloved Son. This is my one and only true Son, whom my soul fully loves. Hear Him. Listen to Him. Pay attention to Him alone. The very words that this is my beloved son were the ones spoken at his baptism. The ones spoken of throughout the Old Testament to refer to the Messiah so often. Matthew even includes the phrase, in whom I am well pleased. Another statement from Jesus' baptism. But all of them agree it is my beloved son. Listen to him. Pay attention. Take into yourself all that he teaches you. He has been saying that he will die and be raised again. Listen to his words. Do not deny that reality that is to come. Do not deny that he must die for our sins. For he will be raised by the power of God himself. God himself will come down and make, bring him back to life. And all will be changed. All will be made new. All will be redeemed through Christ by coming in faith to Him, by trusting in His sacrifice and His ways. And suddenly, verse 8 says, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. Jesus only is the one that they see. There, the one who has shone forth with the glory of God, the one who has been revealed to them on this holy mountain as being perfectly divine. And yet, man... They can't remain on that mountain. They don't have tabernacles. They don't have tents. They don't have houses. They must keep going forward. But what do they go forward with? They go forward with the presence of God, the fullness of deity dwelling in the flesh of Christ. He's perfectly God, and therefore He is the only tabernacle that they need and that we need. The only tent that we will ever need to find shelter in. We seek no other shelter for our rest. We seek Jesus alone as our true shelter. All the Gospels here agree that when that cloud lifted, they only saw Jesus. Because He is the one to whom we must cling. He is the one that our hearts must hold on to. We don't hold on to our experiences. We don't hold on to those mountaintop moments. We don't cling to those charismatic moments in our lives. We cling to Jesus alone. For even in all that glory that they saw on top of that mountain, they are sent away from that mountaintop. They are sent, though, with Jesus. 
The experience helps them to understand Jesus better, yes, but experiences fade. Events in our lives that are grand and glorious will disappear and fade from our memories. And we are directed to look at Jesus only, to cling to Him as our Savior, to turn to Him as our Redeemer, to know in Him is forgiveness. And so we must hold on to Jesus as our one and only resting place. We don't build our own tabernacles, for we have a tabernacle not made with hands, the Son of God who has taken on human flesh. Experiences end, but Jesus remains with us, just as He remained with these disciples. And so that law and those prophets recede only in as much as Jesus is the fulfillment of that. He doesn't replace the law and the prophets. He is the ultimate declarer of the law and the prophets. For He Himself fulfills all that they pointed to. We don't abandon them in order to hear about Jesus. We listen through the law and the prophets to discover Jesus. They only fade away because Jesus encapsulates all of that in Himself. He fulfills all that the law told us and He is the completion of all that the prophets spoke of. And so again, when that cloud lifted, it's fitting that it's only Jesus that they see. For the law and the prophets point them to Jesus. Just as that glory cloud pointed them to Jesus, just as the light shining forth from Jesus because of His divinity points them to Jesus. It all comes back to Jesus. To the Scriptures that tell us of Jesus. That's what St. Peter tells us. To hear the Word of God. To hear those Scriptures. To discover in those Scriptures the reality of what God is accomplishing for us. To know that He has been spoken of through those words. The prophetic word is more fully confirmed because they saw Jesus on that holy mountain. And thus they know that that prophetic word, the Old Testament and the words that they are writing, that the apostles have written down for all the followers of Jesus to cling to, that that is fully confirmed and thus is trustworthy and thus should be looked back upon in order to know Jesus That as Jesus has ascended and left our sight, we have His inscripturated Word given to us to hear. For that is how we hear Jesus today. As I said, that low whisper. Not a loud, boisterous, banging, clanging all around us. But in this Word is Jesus Himself for us. A low, thin whisper that we hear by the presence of the Spirit in the Word for us. The presence of the Spirit in us by way of faith and baptism. The presence of Jesus Himself within us as well. Speaking to us and taking this Word and applying it to us. And so we hear of Jesus through this Word. We wouldn't know of the transfiguration without the Word being written down for us. And so when the Father says, listen to Jesus, He's also telling us to listen to the Bible itself. To listen to the Word that tells us about Jesus so that we can know Jesus. To know that He dwells in us and is for us and guides us through His Word that we would know Him more deeply. And all of Scripture points us to Jesus only. Only to Jesus do we cling. And the Word tells us to cling to this man, Jesus, who is both God and man for us. And so when we come off of that mountain, when we come out of the great and glorious experiences, we will lose out if we cling to those. We will miss Jesus when we cling to our experiences. 
But when we cling to Jesus, we will be transfigured like He was transfigured. We will be united to His divinity and that life will pour into us and we will be glorified in the end as He has been glorified now. For that glory resides in us because we are united to Him already. And that new life flows through us and will be manifested in its fullness at the end. Just as we come to this end of the season of Epiphany, we see the glory of Christ. We look forward to the end when Christ returns, when we will be made glorious, when that glory will be revealed for us. For Jesus was transfigured in order to direct us to the sufferings that He will endure, in order to reveal to us that low whisper of God through the word that God gives us about Jesus, that we would share in that glory, that we would partake of the glory of Christ revealed at the transfiguration for us. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.